Hi, and welcome to Hella Healthy, the world's sickest podcast. I'm Dr. Serenity Della Porta, your guide on this journey through health. I have a very timely topic for you today. We are going to talk about how to understand stress and the ways it impacts your health, a discussion I hope you will take to heart. Americans are experiencing record levels of stress. The COVID-19 pandemic is taxing our healthcare system and economy and has left many people dealing with sickness, grief, and loss. Our country recently watched our democracy under attack on live television as years of political divisiveness and hate-filled rhetoric came to a head in a violent attack on our capital. We continue to reckon with a long history of racial injustice and repeated incidents of police violence. There has never been a more pressing time to deepen your understanding of what stress is and how it can pose a risk to your health. Before we get started, I want to give a shout out to my favorite stress researcher, Dr. Sheldon Cohen, whose work greatly influenced this episode and my understanding of stress. He has conducted years of sophisticated and insightful studies on the nature of stress and health as one of the world's only psychoneuroimmunologists, which is an expert on the connections between psychology, neurology, and immunology. I was fortunate enough to meet him briefly years ago, and he was very humble and kind as well. I am deeply grateful for his work on stress. It has been life-changing for me, and I hope that what you learn on this episode will change the way you think about stress as well. I will link to his website and some of my favorite studies and articles of his in the show notes. Stress is a word most of us use quite often, generally to communicate the feeling of being overwhelmed and upset. When we feel this way, it is accompanied by heightened emotional arousal and has significant physiological effects. We discussed a bit about these effects on our bodies and how they were originally discovered on episode three. We are going to get into the physiology a bit more today, but we all know what it feels like to experience stress. Our heart pounds, our breathing becomes more rapid, and our blood pressure goes up, our digestion slows down, blood is diverted from our main organs to our extremities so we are ready to fight or flee, our hands get clammy and our mouth gets dry, we are flooded with racing thoughts and our muscles get tensed. When strong enough, this stress response can be completely debilitating and make it impossible to function. When we experience repeated or irresolvable stressors, it puts us at risk for disease. What do we understand about how and why stressful life events negatively impact health? And what do we know about stress management techniques that might help? On episode two, I mentioned how the theory of homeostasis had an important influence on our understanding of health. Homeostasis was first proposed by French physiologist Claude Bernard in the 1860s as he was studying hormones. 
Bernard noted the importance of keeping cells in our body healthy by maintaining a specific internal environment. Homeostasis is the process by which our bodies respond to various changes in environmental conditions and work to maintain internal equilibrium to keep our cells healthy. We now understand that homeostasis is maintained via critical activity of hormones and our nervous systems. In 1936, Hans Selye proposed the General Adaptation Syndrome, which continued to improve researchers' understanding of how repeated stress creates wear and tear on various physiological systems, putting us at greater risk of disease. Selye's General Adaptation Syndrome depicts stress as endangering our life when it cannot be met with the right adaptive responses. Popular acceptance of this view meant people were finally acknowledging the widespread influence stress has on our health and functioning. Selye's emphasis on the role of adaptability and resistance to stress planted the seeds of our modern resilience movement, which has had both positive and negative implications for our views of stress. On the positive side, it has helped us see the benefits of coping well. On the negative side, it can place an expectation and burden of coping onto the person. In 1998, an American neuroendocrinologist, which is an expert on how brains interact with hormones, named Bruce McEwen, proposed the term allostatic load for the continual wear and tear of maintaining homeostasis in response to stressors over time. This theory directly stated that the harder our internal systems must work to maintain internal equilibrium, the more wear and tear our bodies experience over time and the greater the risk to our health. Many stress researchers today view allostatic load as a valid way to conceptualize the impact of repeated stress on health. Over the past 70 years or so, scientists have continued to explore the links between stress and health. Three distinct but overlapping fields of research have emerged, the epidemiological approach, the psychological approach, and the biological approach. These three research traditions can be seen as tapping into various stages of one overall stress process, linked together in important ways despite their diverging experts and lines of research. I want to familiarize you with each field's approach and what each has found regarding connections between stress and health. The epidemiological approach focuses on stressful life events themselves as a risk factor for disease. This view would say that divorce, for instance, is equivalently stressful for all people who go through one, and that the greater number of these types of stressful events occur to a particular individual, the greater the risk to their health. Epidemiological researchers approximate how stressful particular kinds of events are by averaging research assistance or community sample ratings of the magnitude of stress posed by different events. 
They then use these ratings to look for statistical connections to health outcomes. For example, researchers might have a group of 50 trained research assistants rate on a scale of 1 to 100 how stressful specific life events are using a shared definition of stress. This means the research assistants use a shared definition to make their ratings, and this definition usually centers around how much adjustment a person must make in response to that event. On a scale of 1 to 100, for example, 1 might be no adjustment necessary, and 100 might be complete adjustment to all aspects of one's life. The average of the research assistance ratings are used as a score for the degree of stress people experience in response to different events. Using this as a stress scale, research participants complete a checklist of which stressful life events they have experienced in the last year, and the scores are summed. Epidemiological stress scores are thus based on average ratings for particular events. Importantly, epidemiological studies like this do not ask participants to gauge how stressful an event was for them personally. Instead, researchers try to come up with an objective score for how stressful an event is perceived to be based on the consensus of a group of people. Let's say a person had gone through a divorce, lost their job, and had to move houses in the last year. If the average rating given by the research assistants for divorce was 88, and the average rating for job loss was 85, and the average rating for moving was 52, this person's stress score for the year would be 88 plus 85 plus 52, which is 225. Every person who experienced those three events over the past year would be assigned the same stress score. Researchers then take those summed stress scores and see if they predict the development or progression of disease. For example, they might examine cardiovascular disease. If stressful life event scores predict cardiovascular disease, this is evidence that stressful events are a risk factor for heart disease. Studies using epidemiological approaches like the one I just described have found that stressful life event scores predict morbidity, for example, in depression, respiratory infections, and heart disease, and mortality. Though there is significant evidence that experiencing stressful life events puts people at greater risk for health problems, it is still unclear whether the influence is cumulative, with health outcomes continuing to worsen as the number of events increases, or if once people experience any single event stressful enough, it is sufficient to increase their risk, with no additional risk as number of events increases. The evidence on that is unclear. The psychological approach to studying stress focuses on individuals' responses to stressful events. The emphasis here is on people's perceptions of stress, which are based on how we assess life events and what we believe about our ability to cope. When someone views a life event as posing a serious threat to them 
And when they do not believe they have the sufficient resources to cope with that event, they will experience high levels of stress. The psychological approach highlights the fact that not all people respond to the same event in the same way. It is not inevitable that all people who experience the same event will feel stressed or stressed to the same degree. Let's discuss these two psychological aspects of how we experience stress. First, we have how we assess the event itself. This is called appraisals of the event. Essentially, we are always on the lookout for any event that threatens us physically or psychologically. Whether we perceive an event to be threatening is influenced by our personal values, our expectations about what is normal, acceptable, or ideal, our beliefs about ourselves and our capabilities, our personality, and many other things. Also, context matters. The intensity, duration, and controllability of events also influence our perceptions of stress. Events that are perceived to threaten social status are rated by people as being the most stressful. Whether we find a situation stressful then has a lot to do with how we think about and frame the situation. This does not mean we can easily remedy the situation by simply changing the way we think, as many people selling stress management techniques would like to imply. When someone has violated one of our core values, for example, we experience this as a moral injury and it elicits a lot of stress. We cannot simply change our core values, nor do we generally want to. But it is important to understand that the reason you are feeling distressed is due to a violation of your personal values and not some other aspect of the situation. This kind of clarity helps you cope better with stress. Let's give an example. A colleague of yours is making unethical professional choices. You feel distressed when they start to excel in their job. One could be tempted to argue that you are feeling threatened by the other person's success because it might take away from your own success. Perhaps they will get a promotion instead of you. But your experience of stress in response to this competitor's success versus the type of threat you feel from a competitor whose work you greatly respect reveals to you that it is not simply having a person professionally competing with you that is distressing you. That kind of stress exists, for sure, but it feels a lot different psychologically if you pay close enough attention. Developing the ability to detect these nuanced aspects of stress is a highly useful type of emotional intelligence. The more we can understand which things trigger us into a stress response and why, the better equipped we are to manage stress. That brings us to the other psychological aspect of experiencing stress, which is our appraisals of coping. This refers to our beliefs about whether we can deal effectively with the stressful situation. These beliefs are determined by our assessments of the tangible resources we see as being available to help us, as well as our own ability to cope emotionally. When we view a stressful event as a challenge that we are capable of overcoming on our way to achieving our goals, we will feel much less stressed 
than if we were to view that same event as an insurmountable barrier blocking the way to our goals. Our appraisals of coping can reflect real differences in access to resources. For example, it is much easier to cope with a divorce when you have the financial resources and much harder to cope with a divorce amidst financial instability. Our appraisals of coping are a combination of our perceptions of the resources actually available to us and our beliefs about those resources, as well as the intangible resources we possess like emotional strength and resilience. Psychologically speaking, people experience stress when they view an event as threatening and believe they do not have the resources to cope with it. Psychologists have created perceived stress scales that quantify the degree to which people feel the demands in their life outweigh their ability to cope with those demands. When you complete one of these scales, you are given a time frame, let's say within the last month, and you rate the degree to which you have felt that the demands of your life have outweighed your ability to cope with those demands over that time period. These kinds of perceived stress scales have been found to predict morbidity and mortality as well. Therefore, we have epidemiological evidence that experiencing stressful life events is a risk factor for disease. We also have evidence from psychological studies showing that perceptions of stress predict important health outcomes. What we see then is that going through a stressful event and perceiving events as stressful are both important aspects of the stress process, each representing an important part of the risk factor that is stress. Finally, the biological view focuses on how much physiological disturbance we experience in response to stressful events. Biological research on stress has revealed two main systems involved in the fight or flight response. The first is called the sympathetic adrenal medullary system, most often referred to as the SAM system. The second is called the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, most often referred to as the HPA axis. The activity of the SAM system and the HPA axis in response to stress is thought to be adaptive in the short term, but becomes maladaptive and a risk factor for disease when experienced over the long term. The biological view of stress puts a great deal of emphasis on homeostasis and allostatic load. Researchers use biological markers that reflect the activity of the SAM system and or the HPA axis, such as cortisol or epinephrine, to quantify the amount of stress a person is experiencing. These biological markers are then used to predict morbidity and mortality, giving us evidence that the physiological stress response, what we refer to as fight or flight, when activated for too long a period or too frequently, can lead to dysfunction and disease. Importantly, experimental biological studies of stress, where researchers expose participants to a stressful situation in the laboratory that mimics real-life stressful events and measures biological markers of the stress response, have shown that individual differences in physiological responses to stress are themselves 
predictive of morbidity and mortality. This means that people differ in their physiological responses to stress and that those with a greater physiological response to stress are at greater risk for disease. What then is stress? Stress is experiencing stressful events. Stress is perceiving an event as threatening and believing we cannot cope with it. Stress is a physiological response called fight or flight that involves the activation of the SAM system and the HPA axis. These are all important aspects of the stress process, which are all deeply interconnected and together represent the pathways from stressful life events to disease, which we see evidence for across these fields of research. Though there is ample evidence that stress is a threat to health, there is not much agreement among experts regarding which characteristics define events as stressful. Some researchers believe stress is a function of how much adaptation an average person would be required to make in response to that event. Other researchers argue that stress is a reflection of how threatening or how harmful we perceive an event to be. Some researchers focus on the degree to which demands exceed resources. Other researchers define life events as stressful when they interrupt major life goals. In reality, stress is a reflection of all of these dynamics to varying degrees depending on the situation. There is not one correct view of what makes an event stressful for people. You might be tempted to wonder which diseases stress puts you most at risk for, but the reality is that stressful events impact most diseases. The diseases that have been studied the most and which have the greatest amount of evidence linking them to stress are depression, cardiovascular disease, infectious diseases, and cancer. Of these, depression is the most strongly linked to stressful life events. Stressful events have been found to be one of the strongest predictors of depression in community samples, and people who develop depression have been found to be three to nine times more likely than people who do not develop depression to report having experienced a major stressful life event prior to onset. Also, experiencing stress once a person is depressed has been associated with greater severity of symptoms, a longer duration of the illness, and greater likelihood of relapse. What about heart disease? Studies that follow people over time, called prospective studies, have measured which events people experience and who goes on to develop cardiovascular disease. These types of studies have shown that people who experience stressful life events are at greater risk for developing cardiovascular disease later on in life. Similar to depression, experiencing stress once a person has developed heart disease is associated with worsening of the condition and even an increased risk of mortality. Sadly, acute, severe stressors can trigger cardiac events in people who have pre-existing heart disease. Some of my favorite studies on stress and the most compelling evidence for the causal role of stress in disease comes from research looking at infectious disease outcomes using an experimental design. 
In these studies, participants fill out a variety of stress scales, such as the Stressful Life Events Checklist and Perceived Stress Scales described earlier in this episode, and are then put through a viral challenge where either saline solution or a solution containing a cold virus is dropped into their nose. Participants do not know whether they have received the virus or saline solution, nor do the researchers collecting the data. This is called a double-blind placebo-controlled study, and it is the strongest way to infer causality. Here, exposure to the virus, the type of virus, and the amount of virus are all being controlled. Participants are quarantined for five or six days in a hotel following exposure. They record their symptoms, and researchers measure viral shedding, mucus production, and congestion. They even collect and weigh tissues. Yuck. Rest assured, participants are amply compensated for their participation in these studies. Results show that people who report having experienced greater stress at the start of the study are more likely to come down with the common cold when exposed. This is strong evidence that our immune systems are actually compromised by the experience of stress, which has many real-world implications, especially now in the time of COVID. In fact, Dr. Sheldon Cohen, who I mentioned before and has done the most of this kind of research, recently wrote a very compelling paper about how his findings might shed light on who is most susceptible to the coronavirus and most susceptible to coming down with severe COVID. I will link to that paper in the show notes. It's definitely worth a read. Research examining links between stress and cancer is much less clear-cut and has had mixed findings. Some studies find that stressful events are a risk factor for developing cancer, while others do not. This may be due to the fact that cancer itself is a very heterogeneous disease, meaning it takes many different forms and can vary significantly from one form to another. Some people argue different cancers are essentially different diseases because of how dissimilar they can be. It may also be the case that stress is only one of many types of risk factors for cancer, and perhaps the lack of strong evidence is a reflection of its influence being minimal compared to other causes. We still have a lot to learn about the relationship between stress and cancer. Similarly, we have much to learn about many other diseases and their relationship to stress. Regardless, we know that stress predicts all-cause mortality, meaning death from any cause, and it influences health via key physiological systems that affect many of our vital organs. We have tremendous reason to believe that stress most likely plays a role in the progression of most diseases to some extent. It may not be all that useful to think in terms of how stress is related to any one particular disease. Rather, we should view stress as a risk factor for all types of disease and a risk factor for worsening prognosis of any disease that does develop. Now that you have a better understanding of what stress is, and the amount of evidence linking it to health outcomes, it would be easy for me to overstate the risks posed to you by stress. I could persuade you to view stress as a threat to your health and try to sell you some easy and affordable ways to battle it, 
Many people do just that. I hope you can see by now, however, that getting to the real root of stress and fully addressing it is not as simple as most of these people would have you believe. It can be quite stressful, in fact, to be told that solving all your stress problems comes down to a few simple changes you can easily choose to make, especially when you pay someone for that advice and find yourself feeling just as stressed out in the end. Unfortunately, I see this kind of marketing in the wellness sphere all the time. The good news is that while it is the case that stress is a risk factor for disease and a significant one, it is not the case that most people who experience stressful life events will get sick. For example, in one of the studies on infectious disease mentioned before, only 36% of people who did not report experiencing a stressful event developed a cold while 49% of the people who did report a stressful event developed a cold. It is clear that people who had experienced stress were significantly more likely to develop a cold, 49% versus 36%. What is also clear, but often ignored, however, is that over half of the people who reported a stressful event and were exposed to the virus did not become sick with a cold. This means that although stress should be taken seriously and we should develop good coping mechanisms, we ought not be overly stressed by the risk of stress. Ironically, overstating the influence of stress on health is a real source of stress for many people. We are all under record levels of stress in America and being told that stress is your personal problem to solve and that resolving it is as simple as a few easy steps does not help to alleviate stress. It exacerbates it. Like with all things in health, I hope you will guard your time and money from those who wish to sell you some shallow and ineffective method for managing stress. You do not want to trust someone who is really just taking advantage of your feeling stressed to move their own agenda forward. Anyone who genuinely cares about helping you manage stress and improve your health will take the time to learn about what stress is and how it is connected to health. In reality, you will probably know more about stress and health after listening to this one episode than many people who are trying to sell stress solutions. Instead of paying for acupuncture or essential oils or words of positivity, unless those things are really your jam because you find them so enjoyable, invest in knowing yourself and your stress triggers and discovering which healthy methods of relaxation you personally find most effective and sustainable. Let's use the framework of the stress process I laid out to discuss effective ways you can counteract the effects of stress and best protect your health. We will begin with the most direct pathway from stress to disease, which is the physiological effect of stress via the fight or flight response. Biofeedback is a helpful method you can use to help you learn how to counteract the physiological effects of stress. There are good laboratories that help you do this, but you can also do it on your own. The goal is to become familiar with the physiological sensations of stress and learn which relaxation techniques effectively calm that response for you. For example, you might go into a laboratory and be hooked up to a machine 
that continuously measures your blood pressure and heart rate. Then you are exposed to something moderately stressful, like a timed memory task, while you observe your heart rate and blood pressure change. Using techniques like deep breathing and progressive muscle relaxation, you observe what works to bring your heart rate and blood pressure back down to baseline. You also become familiar with the sensations that accompany relaxation and calmed physiology. You repeat this experience using the biofeedback to help you become more and more familiar with the sensations you feel when your body is experiencing the stress response and when it returns to a state of calm. Research shows that people who develop these skills are better able to control their stress responses. Additionally, being keen to notice when we are feeling stressed can help cue us to either remedy or leave the stressful situation, hopefully before things get worse. Many wearables make doing this at home feasible. You can even use a home blood pressure cuff to do a quick and dirty version of biofeedback. Deep breathing and progressive muscle relaxation are two methods that have been found to be very effective at counteracting the fight or flight stress response. Deep breathing involves taking slow, deep breaths, which calms our nervous system and signals our brains to calm down the stress response. A really good method for deep breathing is to lay on the floor and place one hand on your chest and one hand on your stomach. Slowly inhale for a count of four to five seconds. Hold for one to two seconds, then slowly exhale for a count of four to five seconds. Only the hand on your stomach should be moving up and down, indicating that you are pulling the air deep into your lungs and not breathing shallowly. Progressive muscle relaxation involves focusing on specific muscles in the body, feeling them, detecting any tenseness, and intentionally relaxing each group of muscles from head to toe. There are some guided meditations you might have tried called body scans, which are very similar to progressive muscle relaxation. This brings me to another very effective method for countering the physiological impacts of stress, and one that begins to address the psychological aspects of stress as well, called mindfulness-based stress reduction, or MBSR. MBSR involves the practice of mindfulness meditation as a means for reducing perceptions of stress and calming physiological responses to stress. There are many MBSR programs offered throughout the country. The most renowned researcher on MBSR and health outcomes is John Kabat-Zinn. He has trained many experts to offer these programs and to train others to offer such programs. In the show notes, I will link to a free online version of an MBSR program offered by an instructor certified by the University of Massachusetts Medical School, so you can check one out for yourself at no cost to you. A while back, I was blessed to participate in an MBSR program and attend an in-person retreat with mindfulness meditation expert Thich Nhat Hanh, who has written many great books and given many great talks on the subject. His teachings really opened my eyes to see that becoming more present in the moment, being aware of our breath, 
and learning to observe our thoughts and let them pass are all great skills to fight stress. Luckily, many apps and other media have been developed to offer you easy access to mindfulness meditation at low or no cost to you. With so many things being online due to the pandemic, finding MBSR experts and resources is easier than ever before. You can also work on your appraisals of stressful events. One thing to be on the lookout for in particular is catastrophizing, which has been associated with poor health outcomes such as increased symptoms of depression and pain. Catastrophizing is when you view a stressful event as a catastrophe, as if the negative impact of that event will be long-lasting and all-encompassing. Think of a typical teenager whose secret crush is exposed to their peers and they feel as if their whole life is over. This is the quintessential example of catastrophizing. All of us do this a little bit sometimes, but some people have a tendency to view all or most stressful events as catastrophes. When we are in full-on fight-or-flight mode, it really can feel like our actual life is being threatened, when in fact, our social status is what's most often being threatened, or our sense of self. We are often physically safe, but respond psychologically and physiologically as if we are being chased by a tiger. This is why we should learn to identify the sensations of stress, label them as what they are, and gain clarity on what aspects of the situation we are finding distressing. Understanding what stress is helps to keep your racing thoughts from running down the path of catastrophe. When it comes to coping, try to identify which resources you have available and the methods of coping that work best for you in response to particular kinds of stress. Maybe after you get frustrated, you like to exercise, and when you experience rejection, you prefer a bubble bath. Knowing what works for you is an important kind of wisdom. Don't let anyone tell you there is one way that is best for everyone or that they can know what's best for you. Only you can discover that. Think in terms of both tangible resources and emotional resources. Optimism, prayer, and friendship might be examples of emotional resources available to you, while a meditation app and a nice bathtub might be tangible resources that can help you cope. It is important to note that not all stressful events are random and that our life choices can also impact our exposure to stress. Some stress is unavoidable, and these types of stressors are more common in people who experience poverty. I would never imply that stress is the result of one's choices. However, our choices do play an important role in how much stress we will experience. For example, choosing to marry an alcoholic or work at a dangerous job has real consequences in terms of lifetime exposure to stress. It is worth considering how your personal choices play a role in the types of stress you experience. Learning to know ourselves, understanding the dynamics and causes of our stress, and finding the methods that truly work to calm us 
are running themes of what works for managing stress. Each is an important piece of the puzzle. The more you work on these skills, the better you will be at protecting yourself from any negative health effects due to stress. Never let your pursuit of stress management cause you so much stress that it outweighs the healthy changes you make. Some people stress so much about behaving a certain way to manage their stress that they cause more harm than good. If trying to get regular exercise or go out into nature puts undue stress on you, find methods that work better for you. It is true that both exercise and being in nature help lower stress for people, and I do recommend these techniques as stress management tools. But just because research shows a benefit does not mean that for all people, these are helpful methods. Trust your intuition and avoid any methods that add more stress when the goal is to reduce stress. That being said, do give some things a try. Make it a priority to understand and manage your stress. It can be hard to get started, but once you get going, you might find you feel better when you try some of these techniques like deep breathing or progressive muscle relaxation. Exercise and getting out into nature are good examples of activities that often take effort to initiate, but end up being self-reinforcing once started because they improve our mood. I can't tell you how often I have found myself feeling really good during or after a workout and wondering why it was so hard to get started in the first place. Building our toolbox of helpful techniques to manage stress and deepening our understanding of the benefits of these techniques helps us establish healthy and sustainable habits that reduce the risk to our health from stress. I hope you come away from this episode with a deeper, clearer understanding of what stress is and why it is important to health, as well as inspiration for ways you can better protect your health in the face of stress. There are many resources available to you that can further your understanding of stress beyond what you have learned here and help you develop better skills to manage it. Today, we have taken a step to move beyond the lip service and discover what it really means when we say stress matters to health. Our journey understanding stress and health is only beginning. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hella Healthy. I hope you will join me for our next episode where I will discuss relational health and the impact of loneliness. Relationships are very important to health, but this is not well understood or appreciated by most people. I will explore how and why relationships impact health with a particular emphasis on the role of loneliness as a risk factor for disease. Have a hella great day and please remember to be kind.